0: 20. Raceful France. A few miles farther and much lower I made camp above the Indian Pueblo of San Pedro, as far as I could make out the most eastern extension of the northern Aztecs Mexicanos or Mexicaneros, as they are called here. From here southward I found them in many of the warm valleys of the Sierra intermingled with Tepeguans and Coras. There is an excellent road zigzagging down to the mining place of ventanas, windows, from the formation of a rock for the greater part of the distance. But at the outset the way, that two places, is so narrow that parties coming from opposite directions could neither pass nor turn back, which is not pleasant with a yawning chasm of a couple of thousand feet so close at hand. I was anxious to secure men to go up again into the Sierra and farther south, but the people were afraid of the cold, and nobody seemed to know anything about the country except the postmaster, and he only in a vague way. Masalan is not much more than 100 miles off and Duranga 125 miles. There are here a great many dikes of porphyry of different ages, but neither slate nor granite in the immediate vicinity, though there is some granite farther up the river. Among the mine owners who lived in Ventanas I was surprised to find a Swedish gentleman. They all received me hospitably, providing me also with two men, whom I badly needed. We had to ascend on the other side of the Barranca as high as we had been north of this place and for a day we traveled through snow and rain, corn does not grow here, from one point the pacific ocean can be seen, we then descended again a couple of thousand feet to the village of Chavaria, which is the only Mexican village I have seen where the houses had gable roofs covered with shingles, the walls of the houses were adobe, but I was told that the earth at this place is not suitable for making the usual flat roofs, while camping here I saw, on the 15th of February. A flock of six giant woodpeckers pass by in the morning. Except in the pairing season these birds are not seen in such numbers. The journey over a high part of the Sierra Madre to the Mexican village of Tueblo Nueva requires two days. On the second day I obtained a magnificent view toward the east and southeast. The high peak towering in the distance is Cerro Gordo. Very broad at the base and conical in shape. Patches of snow were visible on it. And snow lay in the crevices wherever we traveled. I descended through magnificent groves of cedar trees to Pueblo Nuevo, making my camp on top of a hill, from which I overlooked the little settlement and the valley in which it nestles, as every house is surrounded by its little garden of orange trees, oddwood copies, and haws, the landscape presented a massive verdure of different shades, the ugly, often dilapidated houses being almost lost in the green, lemons grow wild, and therefore there is no sale for them. Lemon juice mixed with milk is in many parts of Mexico considered a remedy for dysentery. The young priest, who exercised a supreme but judicious authority in this secluded spot, treated me with much consideration. He took an honest pride in the development of his little village, and showed me its sights. First the church, which he was embellishing in many ways, and then the spring which supplied the place with water, and where the women gathered to wash their clothes and gossip. We met many graceful figures carrying jars on their shoulders, as in ancient times. In order to give me an opportunity to see the people, El Señor Cura allowed them to come and dance on his veranda. His organist was a musical genius, and a composer of no mean ability. And on the cabinet organ the priest had brought from Durango on muleback he played not only hymns, but also excellent dance music. The climate here was delightful, the valley fragrant with the perfume of oranges and one felt reluctant to leave this restful camp. But I was soon reminded that nothing in this world is perfect, as one night a storm lifted my tent up and carried it several yards off, leaving me to sleep as best I could till morning. The wind was so powerful as to fell trees. The Pueblon Weva was once inhabited by Aztecs. The present inhabitants, though amiable, are indolent and lazy. And there is a saying that in Durango not even the donkeys work. I therefore had considerable trouble in finding a guide, the difficulty being aggravated by the fact that nobody seemed to know anything about the country toward lodges, the Tepehuang village I was making for, the Sierra to the south where the Tepehuang's live, is not frequented by the people here, who maintain communication only toward the east, principally with the city of Durango, where they market their garden crops of chile and tomatoes. Nevertheless, some of the Tepehuang pueblos belong to the Curaz Parish and he seemed to be the only one who could give definite information about the country southward. The track leading down to the San Diego River runs through an idyllic valley where picturesque brooks trickle down the slopes between groves of semi-tropical vegetation. In one of the limpid streams a couple of pretty girls were bathing and washing their clothes, as is the custom among the poorer classes of Mexico, who rarely possess more than the clothing they wear. As we appeared on the scene, they gracefully slipped into a deep pool leaving nothing but their pretty faces, like water lilies, floating above the crystal clear water, and thus not in a friendly greeting toward us. Not more than 10 miles travel brought us to the San Diego River. Its source is said to be in the Sierra, apparently toward the north, and it flows in a southerly direction. It was not very difficult to cross, but in flood time it must be large. Its elevation at this point was about 3.300 feet. Here began the ascent into the Sierra again. Although the road on the first day was very good, it required rather hard climbing to get to the top. I was anxious to reach my destination that day, which was Saturday, in order to be in time for the gathering of the Indians in the Pueblo on Sunday. I therefore traveled on after nightfall, though the road was much longer than I expected, leading through extensive pine forests, the monotony of which was interrupted only once by the appearance of a couple of beautiful macaws, just as the moon rose. We entered on the spine of the coyote, as the Tepewans call a narrow ridge, six to eight yards broad, with yawning abysses on both sides, then we came on grassy slopes covered with trees, what a magnificent view there must be here, by daylight, of this wild country, to the southeast could clearly be seen a sloping table land among hills, I even could distinguish some small houses on it, that was lodges, it appeared to be but a league off but in reality it was still three times as far away. We descended among oak trees, when suddenly the track ran down a precipitous volcanic rock, utterly impracticable for the mules to follow. Evidently we had strayed on a side trail, and while we guarded the mules, a man was sent back to look for the main track, which luckily was found after a short time. The worst of it was that the animals had to be led back one by one, along the side of a dangerous precipice and it was a wonder that none of them rolled down the steep sides. I was glad when we could safely proceed on our way. It is disagreeable to travel with a pack train after nightfall, even on a moonlight night like this, but particularly when without a guide and on an unfamiliar track. The journey seems interminable. The fear of losing one's road, or having something happen to the animals, or dropping some part of the pack, Be uncertainty regarding what camping place one may find, and the anxiety lest the backs of the animals may become sore, while the men are getting hungry and in as bad a temper as oneself, all tend to demonstrate the advisability of going into camp when the sun is still well above the horizon, another harassing consideration, which, however, does not apply to this part of the country, is the possibility of arousing a suspicion that pack trains which travel at night carry treasures. After a continuous journey of ten hours and a half we arrived without further mishaps at lodges at 9.30p meters the middle of the night in that part of the world, one of my men, who had a habit of singing whenever we entered a village, had been ordered to keep silent, that the people in this lonely place, susceptible as they are, might not become alarmed at the sudden arrival of such a party, a few houses lay scattered about in the dim moonlight, and I with my chief man rode ahead, they mariah. Called out Calino, knocking at the door of a hut. God give you a good night, he continued, but there was no response. After having in this way tried several huts, we at last succeeded in getting an answer, and learned where Crescencio Ruiz lived, to whom the priest in Pueblo Nuevo had given me a letter of introduction, and who was a kind of secretary to the Indians. We now directed our steps toward his house, aroused him from his slumbers, and after some parleying brought him to the door. He was a small-statured, kindly-looking man, a half-caste, who displayed a friendly manner and showed me where I could camp near his house, as he was very talkative. It was late in the night before I could retire. The name of the village is San Francisco de Lodges. The word lodge a flat stone referring to stones which abound in the neighborhood. The Indian name, Iatian has the same meaning. The next day many Indians came fearlessly and curiously up to see me. They wore the ordinary dress of the working class of Mexico, except that their flat straw hats were trimmed with black and red woolen ribbons and some flowers. The women had flowers and leaves in their hair, which they wore in Mexican fashion, into braids. Some of the men had their hair put up in one braid and fastened at the end with a narrow hair ribbon, but most of them had it cut short. I was surprised to see many bald-headed men, some not over thirty years old. Surely it must be more healthy for the hair to be worn long. Fortunately for me the Indians had just come into the Pueblo for a week to repair the old adobe church, in which work Don Crescencio greatly assisted them. This man, nine years ago, was sent to the place as a teacher by the Mexican authorities in Durango. On his arrival he was met at the old curado by 140 children, none of whom had ever seen a Mexican before. And, of course, they did not understand a word of Spanish. They soon went back to their homes and five days afterward the preceptor was left without a pupil. He induced the parents to make the children return, and forty-eight came back. Out of these, five remained with him for six months. At the close of that period they were able to read and to write their names, of late years. However, teaching has been given up altogether. The fact is that the Indians do not want schools, because, as an intelligent Call afterward told me, Our sons lose their native tongue and their ancient beliefs. When they go to school, they do not want to worship the sun and the water anymore. The white teacher's aim should be to incite the desire for instruction rather than to force his pupils to listen to his teachings, not to destroy the Indians' mental world, but to clear it and raise it into the sphere of civilization. But Don Crescencio remained with the Indians as their secretary, Escribano, attending to whatever correspondence they had with the authorities. And gradually becoming their factotum and advisor. As he was an honorable and straightforward man, his influence was all for their good. To swell his meager income, he carries on a small trade, going twice a year to Durango to replenish his stores, and so invaluable has he become to the Indians that they send some men along with him to watch that he does not remain with the neighbors. He has learned the language tolerably well, and has risen to such importance that the gobernator, as I saw myself, visited him every morning, asking his advice in every movement. These Indians visited me all day long, accompanied by their wives and children, and dauntedly seating themselves in front or outside of my tent, in response to my expressed desire to see and buy articles made by them. They brought me, during my short stay here, girdles and ribbons of wool or cotton, as well as a great variety of bags of all sizes, knotted from twine of McGay fiber, The people here do business on a basis entirely different from that of the neighbors. Inasmuch as they had a fixed price for everything, there is no bargaining with them. When they have once told the price of a thing and it is always a high one, they adhere to it firmly. And as money is no object to them, they make trading rather difficult. On my tours among the people, I found them hospitable. They always asked me to come in and sit down. And they have good manners. The one thing they strenuously objected to and which they were badly afraid of, was the camera, and it took Don Crescencio's and my own combined efforts for five days to induce them to pose, when at length they consented, they looked like criminals about to be executed, they believed that by photographing a person I should be enabled to carry his soul off to eat it later, at my ease, if I chose, they would die as soon as their pictures arrived in my country, or some other evil would result, anyhow, the women disappeared like frightened quails, When I was about to perform the dreadful operation on the men, however, most of them returned to see how their spouses stood the painful ordeal. When I then asked for some women to pose, they ran away. In spite of the demonstrations of the men, only three sturdy ones with great souls remained and were taken after having been duly shaken with fears. The Tepewans feel at home only in their ranches. They clear land in the numerous little valleys of which their rugged country consists and plant corn in places where no plow could ever be used. They always have sufficient corn for their wants. Their storehouses are square upright cribs of bamboo sticks held in place with woods on a framework of pine poles. Sometimes they stand at considerable distances from the dwellings. The floor is raised about a foot above the ground, and the entrance is made from the top. The ears of corn can plainly be seen behind the bamboo sticks. In March they are taken out and shelled and the corn is put in homemade sacks and replaced in the storehouses. The Tepewans make pulque, but not tesvino, and cotton is cultivated on a very small scale. They gather the fiber of the maguey and other plants, and make sacks and ropes of excellent quality, for their own use as well as for sale in Durango, to a which market they also take any fruit not required for home consumption. Their only amusement is to drink mezcal and pulque. No games are in use and to stake money or valuable sin, any of the neighbors' games is forbidden. The commonest disease here, strange to say, is malaria, which sometimes proves fatal. The first thing a Tepeguan does in the morning is to wash his head, face, and hands with cold water, letting it dry without wiping it off. He starts to do his work with the water dripping from him. The southern Tepehuans perform a religious dance called by the Mexicans' nitote, it is also found among the Aztecs. The choras, and the calls In the vicinity of lodges is a circular plain set pleasantly among the oak trees. This is the dancing place. At its eastern side is a shackle, a gable-shaped straw roof resting on four poles. The narrow side standing east and west, inside of it is found an altar, consisting simply of a matting of large, split bamboo sticks topics resting on a framework of four horizontal poles, which in turn are supported by two pairs of upright forked sticks. On this altar the people put the food used at the dances, and many ceremonial objects are placed here or hung under the roof of the shackle, in regard to their native religion, they are as reticent as their northern brethren, if not more so, I would rather be hanged than tell anything, said one shaman to me, still, all things come to him who waits, this very man, who was so tragic, became my friend, and when we parted he asked me to write my name on a piece of paper that we might salute me every morning, a name is a sacred thing, and they never tell their real native names, nowhere else in Mexico had the institutions founded by the missionaries of early times remained intact as in lodges, not only so, but the regulations are carried even further than was originally intended, and this in spite of the fact that the Indians had not given up their own ancient religion, no priest is now living among them, and only at rare intervals does the Qura come from Pueblo Nuevo to Deptiz and Mallory. The native chosen civil authorities are composed of 14, the ecclesiastical of seven members. The governor has supreme authority with both bodies, and when important matters are at issue the people are brought together and consulted. The decisions or orders are given to the so-called captain, who sees that they are carried into effect. The officers are elected every year, and meet in sessions almost every day to settle the affairs of the people, and to inflict punishment even on the shamans when necessary. They have recently renovated the prison, and put in a new set of stocks, and the whipping post is still in constant use, to supplement the laws of the Mexican government, which are considered altogether too mild. The punishments which these people inflict are severe and barbarous. I have heard that Mexican criminals, who have been caught and punished by them, on complaining of their harsh treatment to the government authorities did not receive any sympathy, the latter no doubt considering it meritorious rather than otherwise, on the part of the Indians, to maintain order so effectually without the aid of soldiers, the captain in lodges is on duty day and night, watching that nothing untoward may happen to man, beast, or property, but few strangers come to this remote pueblo, and no one can pass it unnoticed, the only trail that runs through the place is swept every afternoon with branches of trees, and the next morning it is examined by the captain to ascertain if anyone has gone by. White men are wisely prohibited from settling here, and when a neighbor comes, his business is at once inquired into, and sufficient time, perhaps a night and a day, is given him to attend to it, after which he is escorted out of the village. Safety to life and property is thus insured among these Indians. I guarantee you that none of your animals will be stolen here, Cresencio said to me the first night and a very short experience convinced me that he was right. Theft is practically unknown here, unless some neighbor tempts an Indian with a promise of a part of the booty. Murder is committed only by intoxicated individuals, and then the culprit is chained in the stocks for three or four weeks, and gets a whipping at regular intervals. Afterward he is sent to the Mexican authorities in the city of Durango to be dealt with according to the law. There is no capital punishment for murder in Mexico, and when criminals have served their terms and returned to their native village the Indians may even send them back to Durango, saying that they are better off without them. Suicide is unknown. When murder or theft has been perpetrated, they do not at once try to apprehend the suspected person, but first call the shaman to ascertain by divination who the culprit may be, by placing ceremonial arrows, smoking tobacco, and waving plumes. I was told that three years ago two traveling Mexican peddlers arrived here, And after having done a little trading went away without informing the authorities of their departure. This aroused the suspicion of the Indians, who began to look around to see what was missing. Two cows, it seemed, had disappeared, and in two days the peddlers were overtaken, brought back, put in the stocks, and held in prison for eight days, and three times a day they received a thrashing. They had very little food. They were finally taken to Durango. Once two cows and an ox were stolen from Crescencio and the Indians followed the tracks of the thieves, their leader frequently touching the earth with his hands to assure himself by the smell that they were going in the right direction. After a while to Tepewans and their accomplice, the neighbor, who had put them up to the crime, were caught. The neighbor, as soon as he arrived in the village, was given twenty-five lashes, and for two hours was subjected to the agonizing torture of having his head and his feet in the stocks at the same time. Next day he was given ten lashes, and the following day five, and eight days later they took him to Durango. His two Indian associates, father and son, were also put in the stocks, and for two weeks each of them got daily for lashes and very little food, besides which their blankets were taken away from them. Although the Tepewans keep up their ancient rites and beliefs along with the new religion, they strictly comply with the external form of Christianity, paying due attention to all the Christian feasts and observances. Every day the bells of the old church are rung, and the saints are put to bed, as the Indians express it. When Crescentio first came here he found the people on Sundays in the church, the men sitting on benches and the women on the floor. They had gathered there from habit, though nobody knew how to pray, and they sat around talking and laughing all the time. It was their Christian worship. Crescentio has now taught them to say prayers. The teachings of Christianity, however, are for the most part forgotten. No trace of the religion of charity remains among them, but the severity of the early missionaries survives, and their medieval system of punishment. Evidently the tribe always entertained extreme views regarding the relation of the two sexes toward each other, or else the spirit of the new law would never have been imbibed so eagerly. The slightest want of modesty or exhibition of frivolity is sufficient reason for a husband to leave his wife, and for young women never to marry, says Padre Juan Fante. Of the Tepewan Indians, there is no sign of relaxation in their strictness, or of any inclination to adopt more modern views on marital misdemeanor. In the greater number of cases husband and wife live happily together, till death doth them part. If either should prove unfaithful, they immediately separate, the wife leaving the children with the husband and going to her parents. Then the guilty one and the correspondent are punished by being put in the stocks and given a public whipping daily for one or two weeks neither of the parties thus separated is permitted to marry again, if a girl or widow has loved, not wisely, but too well, she is not interfered with until her child is born, a day or two after that she and the baby are put into prison for eight or ten days, and she is compelled to divulge the name of her partner, the man is then arrested and not only put into prison, but in the stocks besides, there are no stocks for women, only two horizontal bars to which their hands are tied, if they refuse to betray their lovers, the two culprits are kept separate, and their families bring them food, twice a day messengers are sent through the village to announce that the punishment is about to be executed, and many people come to witness it, the judges and the parents of the delinquents reprimand the unfortunate couple, then from two to four lashes are on each occasion inflicted, first upon the man and then upon the woman, these are applied to an unmentionable part of the back, which is bared. The poor wretch is standing with their hands tied to the pole. The executioner is given a scale that he may be in proper spirit to strike hard. The woman has to look on while the man is being punished, just as the afterward has to witness his sweetheart's chastisement. She opens her eyes, like a cow, as my informant expressed it. While the man generally looks down, many times the judges are ashamed to go through this performance, the character of which is below the standard of propriety of most primitive tribes. Strange to say, the parents themselves compel them to let the law have its course. Afterward, the girl is handed over to her lover in order that they may become officially married by the church. The next time the priest arrives, this may not happen for two or three years, but the two are meanwhile allowed to live together. The girl going to her lover's home to avert all the misery in store for her. An unfortunate woman may try to doctor herself by secretly taking a decoction of the leaves of the collate, a kind of fig tree sometimes punishment is dealt out to a young people for being found talking together. Outside of her home a woman is absolutely forbidden to speak to any man who does not belong to her own immediate family. When fetching water, or out on any other errand, she must under no circumstances dally for a chat with a gentleman friend. Even at the dancing place it is against the law for her to step aside to exchange a few words with any young man. If discovered in such a compromising position. Both offenders are immediately arrested, and their least punishment is today's imprisonment. If their examination by the judges proves that their conversation was on the forbidden topic of love, they get a whipping and may be compelled to marry. Some of the boys and girls who have been punished for talking together in this manner, are so frightened that they never want to marry in lodges, but the more defiant ones deliberately allow themselves to be caught, in order to hasten their union and steal a march on their parents. For these Indians are by no means beyond the darts of Cupid, and both men and women are known to have arranged with a shaman to influence the objects of their tender thoughts, and have paid him for such service. A woman may give a shaman a wad of cotton, which he manages to put into the hand of the young man for whom it is intended. Afterward the shaman keeps the cotton in his house, the affection having been transmitted by it. On the other hand, men and women, to subdue their natural instincts go into the fields and grasp the branches of certain sensitive plants, as the plant closes its leaves, the girls pray that they may be able to shut themselves up in themselves, there are two kinds of sensitive plants growing in the neighborhood of lodges mimosa floribunda, var, albina and mimosa invisa, and recourse may be had to either of them, many men emigrate to other pueblos, though they may in time return, others remain bachelors all their lives, and the judges in vain offer them wives why should we take them? They say, you have thrashed us once, and it is not possible to endure it again. The legitimate way of contracting marriage is to let the parents make the match. When the old folks have settled the matter between themselves, they ask the judges to arrest the boy and girl in question, whereupon the young people are put into prison for three days. The final arrangements are made before the authorities, and then the girl goes to the home of the boy to await the arrival of the priest. When the same yorkura is expected in lodges, all the couples thus united, as well as all persons suspected of harboring unsafe tendencies, are arrested. On the priest's arrival, he finds most of the young people of the place in prison, waiting for him to marry them. For each ceremony the Indians have to pay five, and from now on every married couple has to pay 1.50 per year as subsidy for the priest. No marriage in lodges is contracted outside of the prison. Crescenteo himself when about to marry a one woman, barely escaped arrest. Only by threatening to leave them did he avoid punishment, but his bride had to submit to the custom of her tribe, contrary to what one might expect, and happy unions are rare. Probably the young people are glad to arrest in the safe harbor of matrimony, after experiencing how much the way in and out of it is beset with indignities and leads through the prison gates. However, imprisonment for lovemaking does not appear so absurd to the aboriginal mind as it does to us, and the tribe has accommodated itself to it. I learned that some of the boys and girls after a whipping go to their homes laughing. The obligation to denounce young people whom one has found talking together, under penalty of being punished oneself for the omission, does not create the animosity that might be expected. Besides, the law on this point is none too strictly obeyed or enforced, according to Crescencio. The census taken in 1894 enumerated 900 souls belonging to lodges, and there may probably be altogether 3.000 Tecaguans here in the south. As far as I was able to ascertain, the following Tecaguan pueblos are still in existence. 1. San Francisco de Lodges. 2. got About 15 leagues from the city of Durango. The people here are little affected by civilization, though a few Mexicans live among them. Three. Santiago Teneraca, Situated in a deep gorge, the inhabitants are as non-communicative as at lodges, and no Mexicans are allowed to settle within their precinct. This, as well as the preceding village, belongs to Mesquil, and the Padre from there visits them. 4. Milpilas Chico, where the Indians are much mixed with Mexicans. 5. Milpilas Grande. Here the population is composed of Tepeguans, Aztecs, and Mexicans. 6. San Marial Cotan, and 7. San Francisco, both little affected by civilization. 8. Quibiquindu, about 15 leagues southwest of Lodges, the latter three villages belong to the state of Jalisco, on the road from Durango to Massillon, passing ventanas, there are no Tepehuang pueblos. Chapter XXVI Pueblo Viejo Three languages spoken here the Aztecs The musical bow theories of its origin Dancing metode fasting and abstinence Helping President Dios the importance of tribal restrictions Principles of monogamy disposition of the dead There are today's journey over rough country to Pueblo Viejo My next objective point Again I had great difficulty in finding a guide As the two villages were at loggerheads about some lands The guide furnished me by the authorities hid himself when we were about to start all the other Indians had gone back to their ranches, except one, whom I finally persuaded to show me the way, at least as far as the ranch of the shaman with whom I had made friends, where I hoped that through him I might get another guide on our way. We passed eight three tablos, pictures drawn on a board, the rather fantastic name of a magnificent declivity of reddish rock across which the track led. At this place, tradition says, the Tepewans of lodges in the War of Independence vanquished 300 Spanish soldiers, who were trying to reach the city of Durango from Acaponia. The Indians hog.